This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. I'm Bill Daly, Chair of the Computer Science Department. I'd like to welcome um, you back. I can see that we have a larger audience this afternoon because uh, upstarts and rabble-rousers um, tend to attract a lot of attention. I think one thing which is really unique uh, to Stanford, and I think one thing that sets us apart from our you know, peer um, top-rated computer science institutions is not just our relationship with industry, but the history the university has had in fostering uh, new enterprises. I think it's a history that dates back to Hewlett and Packard, and you know, through a combination of a, a culture um, at the university and the example of, of key figures, um, there's a your rich history, of which a, a small subset is represented on this panel, um, of founding companies. Um, we have an extremely uh, distinguished panel for you um, this afternoon. It includes uh, past faculty. Jim Clark was actually a faculty member when I was a graduate student um, here. Uh, present faculty with uh, Mark Horwitz and Mendel Rosenblum. Um, Andy Beckelsheim was a graduate student when I was a graduate student here, and he had the good taste to work on uh, an unsolvable problem where he was trying to design a bounded time arbiter. He would come up with a clever scheme and it would take Forrest Basket a few weeks to figure out where he had it wrong. And after some number of iterations of this, he left um, and has founded Sun Microsystems, which probably was a more uh, lucrative activity, if not as interesting. Um, we have the, uh, the founders of uh, Yahoo here. Um, we do prefer that people do get their PhDs before they go off and, 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 and found uh, earth-breaking companies. And uh, David Shaw, another distinguished alumnus who decided to uh, be an academic, did that well for a while, and then decided it would be more fun to you know, start one of the first you know, computer trading um, you know, businesses and, and went off and, and did that. Um, to moderate the panel, we have the distinguished technology reporter and author, and also long-distance cyclist, John Markoff, um, who will sort of uh, keep the rabble-rousers in check. Hi. Um, so uh, Andy walked up and said his slides weren't finished yet, and I, I told him we weren't going to use slides, but if we run out of time, Andy will be able to show his slides at the end. So, um, there's still hope. Um, so what, what we're going to do here, well, actually, I, I wanted to say one thing before we got started, because uh, I, I, the panel or I didn't create the title. Um, the title was given to us, and I just wanted to say, you know, I grew up around here. I went to high school, and... and uh, and uh, was around here a lot during college. And when I was going to college in the 60s and 70s, rabble-rouser meant something different than what I think they were, they're referring to the panel in terms of rabble-rouser. Um, you know, I was, I was around a lot, and I even um, worked on occasion for the Stanford Daily. But I think I would have actually been called an outside agitator more than a rabble-rouser when I was here. So I think they mean rabble-rouser in the sense of shaking up industries rather than societies or politics. Um, so uh, we're going to do this informally. I'm going to, um, you know, this is, is going to be sort of a 45-minute conversation with me, and then we'll open it up to the broader, the broader audience. Um, and of course, although this is the absolute ultimate panel that needs no introduction, um, I thought that, in particular, since the Google founders were invited and they're not here, and the Yahoo founders were invited and they are here, um, that we should we should introduce introduce people. And I think I'll do it by. Um, by walking through uh, one of our panelists at a time and, and, uh, and asking uh, probably a, a lead-off question. I'll come back with some thematic questions um, 
<coughs> and then we can go from there. And uh, so I, I met uh, Andy Bechtelshine, uh, I'll, I'll do this in alphabetical order, in 1982 when I was reported InfoWorld, and one of the small talk uh, designers, Ted Kaler, told me I should go over and see this really interesting project at Stanford, the Stanford University Network Workstation. And uh, uh, there was being, you know, it was sort of like an alto, and uh, it was, but it was being done with commodity parts, um, and that it was relatively open, as opposed to the alto. And so I wanted to, so, you know, what's really remarkable about Andy is, of course, that that later became Sun, um, which was largely based on commodity parts. And now if you sort of think about what Andy's doing, he's continuing to innovate back at Sun, doing really interesting stuff. Um, I think it will become obvious that it's even more interesting in the next couple of months, still with commodity parts. What is this? How many years later? <laughs> yeah, it's a, a few years later. Uh, so there's a complete circle here. Um, so a conversation we had just a, a little while ago was really interesting to me um, because uh, I wanted to ask you f first about motivation in your work when you were a graduate student on the Stanford University Network Workstation. What, what sort of, what possessed you to design that machine first? Was it entrepreneurial at the outset or was there something else involved? Well, um, so I came to Stanford in uh, 1977 as a grad student and uh, my first uh, job or goal was actually work on CAD software, computer design software. And the problem was there was no hardware to run this CAD software on. So my idea was then let's build the workstation so we can run the CAD software and that's actually what happened. You also told me that you got to spend some time at Xerox Park. Yeah, so, so yes, I was, a, I was a no-fee consultant, I think they called it at the time, at Xerox. And the great thing was you could spend you know, every night there and nobody would notice you were even there and you could use the whole system. And obviously seeing the Alto computer was a big inspiration and the idea then was take that kind of concept into the industry standard component space. So was it, was it, am I right, was the Alto an inspiration? Yeah, sure was. And you know, the, the one thing was when, we, I should try to make a timeline here. So we started, I think in 1980, we wrote the Sun, you know, Stanford University Network uh, proposal report that got funded. In 1981, we had the first prototypes. In 1982, you know, we wrote a business plan and the venture people funded it. So it took about two years from sort of concept to a startup company. But, but the one thing I was gonna mention here was starting in 91, we had all these, you know, people dropping by, and um, you know, I, I knew that Stanford was an open place, but I could never figure out what actually happened until I talked to John last week, and he told me that he wrote an article about this in InfoWorld. So suddenly, all these, you know, people showed up, wanted to see it. So early marketing is actually very important. <laughs> um, I don't know what to say about that. Um, <laughs> so uh, yeah, um, so um, you made some decisions. Uh, one of the decisions was not to choose the Intel processor. How, how would the world have been different if you had chosen <laughs> Intel? Well, you know, I have to say that you know, Intel was very persistent. So even though I was a grad student at Stanford, their, their sales rep came by at least a dozen times to try to convince me that Intel was a better CPU architecture. And I tried to point out to them, if you wanted to address a megapixel um, display, you know, we just couldn't do it with a 16-bit address address elements. So uh, at the end, of course, you know, uh, 30 years later, everything is different. But at the time, this was a crucial differentiation of a 30-bit architecture. So a final question. Uh, is, is it fair for me to drive a parallel between uh, you and Steve Wozniak? Wozniak actually designed the original Apple One simply because he wanted to show his friends at the Homebrew Computer Club that he had built a computer. 
When did the entrepreneurial bug hit you? Did you design the computer first and, and then, or? Yeah, well, it, it's not really quite the same. So when it was clear that it was a, a major business opportunity for building a workstation class product, you know, even being a student here, because you had people calling us up every week that wanted to buy one. And it was really, when the, when the company started, we actually had a backlog of orders, even though we hadn't even started the company yet. So it was a very unusual situation because Stanford uh, was not really in the business of building computers. It's a, what a non-profit, you know, educational institution. And here we had this little production line going in the basement of Margaret Checks Hall, you know, trying to build the first <laughs> prototypes. <laughs> and I think some of them ended up at Cisco. So, so uh, our second panelist is Jim Clark. And actually, when Jim was a professor at Stanford, I actually just, I stumbled across you too in my InfoWorld career. You, had, you were designing the geometry engine, um, which led to Silicon Graphics, um, which led to Netscape. Um, which led to the Microsoft antitrust trial. Um, I, I could go on. <laughs> Actually, I'd like to, which led to, if you could sort of pick up, what, you know, well, where I, are you now? Well, let me, let me back up. The, um, <laughs> the, uh, my, my work at, at Stanford was uh, uh, basically a result of my background in 3D graphics. And so I, I had the point of view even when I saw the first Xerox Alto, that it was, a, it was an improper way to do graphics. You know, manipulating bits on a display wasn't nearly as interesting to me as, as being able to erase that display in double buffer and redraw everything within a frame time. That, that to me, was the right way to do graphics. So I was always kind of, a, I guess, a rebel against the bitmap world as, as, as the majority of people were, were, uh, were accepting workstations at the time. The only problem is that the, the original geometry engine that I did at Stanford wasn't really ready, wasn't fast enough to be able to put into a workstation. So I, when, when, um, and, and during, when Andy was at, at uh, Stanford, uh, we negotiated. I, Forrest had left, and I took over the contract, and, and uh, Stanford wanted to get some workstations manufactured, some of these Sun workstations manufactured, before Andy formed his company. We actually licensed some of the technology out to uh, several different companies, and I also took a license. But I was primarily interested in, in the underlying um, processor and the underlying CPU and, and the architecture for the general purpose computer that, that he had designed. And uh, then when Bill Joy joined him and um, Scott uh, to form Sun, it sort of lit a fire under me, and I then went out and began to recruit a bunch of people from Bell Labs and eventually became a competitor of Sun. But it took us a couple of years to get our product out because we had to redo the 3D graphics architecture. At what juncture in that process did the entrepreneurial bug bite you? Had, was the entrepreneurial idea in your mind from the start, or did the VCs find you, or...? Yeah. Well, I had been a professor at UC Santa Cruz before, and then I went back east for a year, and I got fired from my job, and I came back because I was a rebel rouser, and I came back to... Uh, Stanford and Forrest uh, got me a job offer as an associate professor here, and I don't think I had entrepreneur had any entrepreneurial uh, spirit at that particular moment. But after teaching 180 students uh, <laughs> per per quarter for two quarters in a row, I said, "To hell with this!" <laughs> and uh, so I said, "I think I can do better in a company." Are you still involved in startups? Yeah, I have a, I'm the chairman of 
main, main investor in Shutterfly, which is an online photography service, is doing pretty well. Going public, finally. <laughs> um, next, uh, David Philo, who's a partner um, with uh, Jerry Yang in, in, in Yahoo, and you know, I think the, 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 the directory under the desk is, is all part of a legend. I, you know, I'm, I'm trying to get at, as we go along here, um, sort of what's special about this chemist, startup chemistry that, that has grown out of Stanford and will it persist? I mean, that was sort of where I thought we'd go. And I wanted to sort of go in that direction by sort of asking you about um, the lablet um, or a small lab that, um, that Yahoo has recently set up in Berkeley. And there seems to be this lablet phenomenon. Maybe I'm, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but there seems to be a lablet phenomenon, Intel, I think Siemens, maybe a couple of others in Berkeley, versus the sort of larger set piece kinds of laboratories that were traditional around Stanford. And I was wondering if there is some sort of you know, is there, is there a shift in a Berkeley direction? Um, or is there a part of the, of the chemistry that's moved away from Stanford um, and is happening elsewhere, Berkeley in particular? I don't think so. I mean, I think that uh, in the case of Berkeley, we just had a, it was a unique, unique opportunity there. We happened to find uh, Mark Davis, who was working on some, uh, a lot of social media things that uh, Yahoo is very interested in today. And so there's a good, mix there between what he was working on and some of the folks there were working on and our interests. And so we just brought those two together and set up a lab. Uh, you know, it's a little removed from where we are down in Sunnyvale, so it was also an opportunity to kind of tap into some of the expertise that's up in that area. Uh, where in the Stanford case, I think it's a little bit easier for us to hopefully bring interns in and things to the main campus. Um, as far as, you know, what's happening at Stanford, I don't really see it changing much from you know, what led to, I think, a lot of us going off and creating companies. To me, that you know, there's a lot of factors that go into that. I think for us, uh, some of these examples you hear that people are building stuff that directly led to, or building things maybe with their research that led to companies. I think in our case, Jerry and I were, um, like Andy, I guess, also working on CAD-type software. Uh, we ended up doing something that was very different than that, obviously. And uh, so for us, it was more about not so much the direct research we're doing, but more just the environment that Stanford provided to us. And that's, you know, partly is being right in the middle of Silicon Valley. Uh, it's about having professors that have gone off and started companies, and you're surrounded with professors, with students, with all these people that are either have done it or are thinking about doing it. And I think that's what really kind of rubbed off on us and really helped us uh, go off and start Yahoo. Okay, and the question I have to ask actually both of you at this point, the most intriguing part of their bio that's on the, on the Yahoo website is that they're both noted to be on leave from PhD programs on, uh, from Stanford. I just get it out on the table right away. How should we interpret that? <laughs> I think it's just a really stale page that needs to be updated. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. So, um, I, I don't think they would have us back at this point. <laughs> Uh, if you would like to come back, we'll have you. <laughs> so uh, on, on that note, I wanted to ask the same question of, of um, our two Stanford uh, current professors who are on the panel, Mark Horowitz and Mendel Rosenblum. Um, Mark is now, I think, at the moment, one of the founders and is now chief scientist at Rambus. And um, Mendel is one of the founders and I believe is chief scientist at, uh, at uh, VMware. Um, and the real question I want to ask Mendel is when will the VMware virtualization layer for the Macintosh Intel platform be available? But I probably shouldn't ask that here. 
it seems to be a hot question on the, on the web, but I actually wanted to ask you both the same question that was brought up by, by seeing the article yesterday in the San Francisco Chronicle um, by Tom Abate, in which uh, David Patterson, who is John Hennessy's colleague at, uh, at Berkeley, asserts, I think the quote was, um, you almost have to start, it's an unwritten rule that you almost have to start a company to be a successful professor at Stanford. And if you could both sort of expand on, on, on that, how much is it a part of the department's culture? Well, if you just took, um, um, did the machine learning approach and you just looked at statistics, there would be high correlations of being successful faculty and starting companies, although there isn't, as far as I know, any causal relationship between the two. I, I, I will say that... Um, I was actually a PhD student at Stanford before I became faculty here, and so I uh, know many of the people around. We, they were colleagues of, of mine, um, and I remember when I started in 79, there was a whole rash of companies that went public, Sun and, and SGI, and I figured, oh, that was my opportunity. I'd never be able to start a company. And then I became faculty, and John Hennessy um, started MIPS Computer Systems, and I thought, well, I guess there was another opportunity, and I missed that too, and there was a whole bunch of CAD companies that went public during the period of time. And my area is VLSI, integrated circuits. I figured, okay, I missed my opportunity. Well, then in 1990, I actually was involved in a startup, Rambus, right? And then, needless to say, in the 90s, there were plenty of other startups that came out of uh, Stanford. Um, and even after 2000, when people said, oh, you can't start a company anymore, a couple colleagues of mine who are currently sitting in the audience actually did start companies that were successful. So I think what really happens at Stanford is just, it's the situation like, like if your brother and sister go to a really elite school, it gives you the confidence that maybe you should try too. I think there's just been a lot of people at Stanford who have done this. There are connections to various things. There's an opportunity there. It's not, it's not essential. I know I have colleagues who are very happy they haven't started companies and they really like their research and they're not looked down upon in any way or any, you know, anything like that. It's just, at least I don't think we do. Um, <laughs> it's just that there's an opportunity there to do that and many people take advantage of that opportunity. Yeah, I, I agree. I just, there, um, partly I think it was our predecessors um, that sort of greased the path to make it very easy to do. Um, for example, I had been here a couple of years and I had written some software. It's like a machine simulation system and there are some people in the industry that are interested in licensing in it. And I was just wanted to give it to them, let them, you know, have someone use it was my goal. And I went over to the Office of Technology Licensing and said, well, here I want to give this away. And they said, okay, we have these VC friends you can talk to and these you know, legal people for setting up the company. I go, no, not doing a company. I just you know, want to give the software away. And sort of discovered from that that it, you know, it's very easy to do. And when I, you know, decided to start a VMware, it wasn't a good time. I was coming up for tenure in a couple of years. So I went to my boss, who was actually John Hennessy at the time, and explained, you know, this is not a great time. And he said, well, I started MIPS when I was in the same position. So it was like, you know, agreement that was pretty easy, even in a not an ideal time of your academic career, to go and start a company. So our, our next panelist is David Shaw. Um, who I, I think went into academia, um, I don't know if it was first, but after he left Stanford, and ultimately in 1988 uh, founded David uh, E. Shaw and Company, D. E. Shaw and Company, uh, which does uh, financial computing um, writ large. Um, and I sort of uh, wanted to ask you to, to, to look back first and ask you if, to what extent the startup culture was in place when you were here as a student. Um, and you know, looking back on it, I mean, you were, I think you've gone far enough away to have some perspective 
um, if you could talk about sort of the, the arc of that culture since you left. Um, you know, the truth is, I don't think I was that aware of what was going on when I was here at Stanford. Um, you know, I was focused exclusively on academics, and I had this vague sense there, there were microprocessors, which I knew a tiny bit about, and that's about all, and I don't think I was terribly aware of, uh, of what startups there were. Oddly enough, I actually started a company in the middle of my PhD program that would pretty much do anything for money, and was successful at doing that, modestly so, and paid for the rest of my PhD, uh, you know, uh, while I was here at Stanford. But I don't think I became aware until I moved to New York and was on the faculty at Columbia just how rich an environment this was and how many things actually got started here. Uh, and also the flip side of that was just how much I'd gotten a feeling for what was going on in the world that wasn't present in other places. Um, not the things we learned from books, but <clears throat> just stuff like, um, the obvious right way to do it, which is things that I was up at the artificial intelligence lab up on the hill, and sort of people around there knew, well, this is sort of the way you do those things. It wasn't until I was elsewhere that I realized that was kind of a specialized community knowledge that not everybody had. I, I also wanted to sort of dial things all the way forward. I got the sense from uh, some of the things you're doing now that, um, that there may be, so is the, um, center of gravity in terms of startups and investing moving from IT to biology? I mean, are you a leading indicator of that? And what, I mean, is, is, it, is it too, will that be the spot that sort of the sweet spot over the next decade? Yeah, if, if we're leading indicators, it's completely by chance. Um, what I've basically done is been able over the years, you know, I never intended to do this, but running what's now the world's largest hedge fund gave me enough money that I no longer have to apply for grants. And so at a certain point, I knew I was going to go back to just pure research, and that's what I'm doing now. So it was just intellectual interest that brought me back to this. That being said, I do think there's kind of a frontier um, there, at least on the academic side, and I'd sort of like to just you know, very frankly proselytize about that. Um, I think people know about the implications of computation in the area of bioinformatics, you know, analyzing the genome and what the various proteins are that interact with each other. A lesser known thing that I think is equally important that has not gotten much attention, uh, either in academia or, uh, or in industry, has been what goes on in three dimensions. Uh, there is a famous problem, the protein folding problem, which people sort of know something about. But understanding the dynamics of what molecules actually do that are biologically interesting, that I think is terribly important from a scientific viewpoint. And if it works, then we ought to be able to develop drugs in, uh, in silico that actually do work. Um, that I think could be immensely powerful in terms of commercial interest, but whether it's actually gonna happen in the short run, I have no idea. I don't know whether this is something one would invest in right now, but that's the kind of thing that uh, I'm pursuing at this point. Finally, uh, Jerry, Jerry Yang, our, our last panelist, uh, also a, a Yahoo founder. I, I guess I'd, I'd like you to respond to, that, to, to the point that was briefly raised by one of the panelists in, in terms of sort of the question of completing studies and things like that. Um, would you do anything differently and sort of what do you tell people when you speak? I mean, when you, come, you must come back here frequently and sort of is there a message about sort of education versus startup that you feel like you communicate? Being um, Chinese, I, I think you, you, you were taught and raised to finish school, so um, it was a, <laughs> an unnatural amount of disgrace when I had to break my mom that I wasn't going to finish. So, I, I, I obviously I think 
we took a, a Philo and I took a risk at trying to start a company, and we always knew if the company didn't go anywhere, which was you know very high probability at the time, that we would come back and finish. What um, what I always in the back of my mind was I wasn't sure I was gonna finish even if I tried. So <laughs> I was uh, just happy that there was a way out for me that made me look good. Um, and this is following uh, somebody talking about protein folding. So I, I don't I don't even know if I could I can keep up a conversation these days. So but I, I honestly I, I think as David said we 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 have certainly outlived our academic usefulness and and if we wanted to um, if we want to come back we would have to start over which. Uh, <laughs> Once was bad enough, but uh. so I wanted to, to start uh, sort of more thematically by, by by focusing on the relationship between the university and the and the, the startup community that surrounds it. Um, probably most of you've forgotten about this, but there was this time on this campus that were actually pitched battles fought about the relationship between the university and the community. Um, in the late 1960s, the relationship with SRI was, was severed over the Vietnam War, and um, uh, there were, there were sit-ins in the computer center. Um, there were people here who went to jail over this, um, and um, uh, there, was, there were sit-ins at, uh, at uh, uh, the, the electronics lab. Now that conversation seems to have totally vanished off the horizon. There seems to be a, an accommodation between the university and the community. and. Um, I just wondered if the if people on the on the panel. I'm, I'm going to I'm going to sort of use this to segue to the relationship between the computer science community and DARPA. But I thought I would start broadly between what by asking you what is the proper role between uh, the university and the community, and is it possible that the dial might have gone too far in the other direction, where um, sort of economic uh, interests determine the course of academic discourse and study? That I mean. Do, any of you see any reason for concern about sort of the current relationship between Silicon Valley startups and the university? Uh, anybody who'd like to? No. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I think there, there is concern about research. There's always concern voiced about research being directed by industry or something like that. But at least from my personal experience, um, it's been a very synergistic process. I think industry's benefited, I certainly have benefited, and Stanford has benefited from that. I mean, it's not unusual for faculty members who do work in a startup. I mean, Stanford's very unusual in the sense that most of the faculty who are involved in startups come back to, to their faculty positions at Stanford. In many other universities, they, people tend to go and then they don't actually return. And I think when the people return, they have both more practical experience about what things are really important. And sometimes they bring back really interesting technical challenges in the area that the company can't address because it's got to sell product and do stuff and fosters new research areas. Certainly for me, when I came back from Rambus, I started work in high-speed interfaces, which was a vibrant field that sort of supported my research for a decade. Um, and my students and I have tremendously benefited from that. So I, I, at least from the experience that I've seen, it's pretty synergistic. The reality is that the, um, the time lag between research and um, commercialization or, or industrial usage is getting shorter and shorter. So many good ideas that germinate here are actually more or less directly applicable to either existing industries or new startup. And one of the great things about Stanford is that the, the connection between the university and, and industry is so fluid 
mean, more so than any other university I've certainly seen, either in the US or anywhere else in the world, that this is truly the best place to, you know, start a company from. This is a, a question I worry a lot about, um, and I think there really is a trade-off. On the one hand, it's always seemed to me that um, industry and the connections between um, industry and the university can have a very important role in terms of focusing on real problems. Um, and, you know, I'm rem reminded by something that Terry Winograd, my advisor here, taught me, which is it's important, you know, when you get involved with interesting uh, new technologies and algorithms and so forth, it's important to think about what problem you're trying to solve and not just take the techniques you're most interested in and apply them in some random way because you can't get really tied down to a particular problem. It keeps your scientific work actually better. Um, at the same time, you know, industry and technology transfer from uh, the university to industry has this potential flip side, which is the slow, not even noticeable uh, tendency sometimes to pull you away from scientifically interesting problems toward things that are of more practical relevance. And that also shows up for graduate students. You know, the danger of having a graduate student who's doing something that helps something that's commercializable but is no longer as uh, scientifically interesting as they need to finish a PhD, for example. Um, the other thing I worry about there is when PhD students um, leave, whether the best of them wind up being attracted to go to industry um, rather than teaching, because that's essentially eating our seed corn. If people leave academia, um, especially the best students leave academia, what do we do about the next generation? So it's sounding like I'm more afraid of it than I am positive. I think it's a really complex issue with two sides. Other questions? I think that, um, you know, Historically, everyone knows the story of Hewlett-Packard, and there's been a history of, of industries spun out of Stanford. It has accelerated a lot, it seems, in the last, uh, well, since, since uh, the early 80s. But um, that's a good thing if the people who do that acknowledge the role that Stanford played by donating money back to Stanford. <laughs> So I'd like to challenge the rest of the panel to step up to the plate. <laughs> so, um, it, you know, the, it brings up the sort of, I think, the sort of the common wisdom is that, um, you know, uh, Dean Terman sort of wanted his students to stay around and he sort of made it possible with the industrial park. But I, I'm often, you know, totally taken by the role of serendipity. I mean, the counter argument is that Silicon Valley actually happened because Shockley's mom lived in Palo Alto. Um, or, um, uh, you know, the, the antitrust lawsuit um, brought by the Justice Department in the 1950s uh, against AT&T forced the compulsory licensing of the transistor. And without the cheap availability of the transistor, the valley would have never happened. There are sort of these wonderful little sidelights. So, that leads me to this question, you know, if in fact that I'm right that there are all these serendipitous factors that lead to these great explosions of creativity and wealth, can you undermine them in the same um, serendipitous fashion? I, I wanted to start this question by, by taking a brief poll of the, of, the, um, of, of the panel. How many of you for, as researchers or, um, or professors at Stanford got DARPA funding? Uh -huh. uh, where, where did your, did you get any fund? We were neither researchers. Wasn't there, did you get any digital library funding? I Not no, no, digital no. library, but I guess it was probably, so, there was probably some DARPA money. So who, who was funding, <laughs> who was funding Nani, right? So, uh, 
you know, it didn't come up much today, but there's, you know, if you talk to the computer science department, I guess it did come up, it came up a little bit. There's been a dramatic decline in DARPA funding. And, uh, you know, if you look at, uh, at Sun and SGI, and I don't know how many other companies that are either indirectly or directly uh, linked to the DARPA funding of that sort of golden era, if that circle is broken now, what are the risks and what are the consequences? Yeah, I, I, in my view, at least, uh, Yahoo indirectly was funded through DARPA just because of the environment that was created with DARPA money. You know, Cisco, Silicon Graphics, Sun, uh, I would argue even Google indirectly, Yahoo. Um, the environment that was created as a result of government, government funding has led to a great deal of the economy, and that's one of the travesties, I think, of the Bush administration, their attitude toward funding. Any other, I mean, is it, is it as, as bad as I've heard? Um, and is it, have, is it having second-order effects? I mean, can people point it? Well, I mean, I, I do think the, ser the situation is quite serious in terms of the, the attitude that comes with some DARPA funding. It used to be DARPA funding allowed you, allowed you to do farther out stuff. Now DARPA funding comes with very short milestones and, and requirements. And, you know, when you're running a research program with students, it's hard to actually have a program where your funding is contingent every 12 to 18 months. Um, so it, it definitely has effects. I think if you polled the CS faculty a while ago, most of us had large DARPA grants that support us. Nowadays, we're scrambling for many other smaller grants in various places, and we're going, trying to find industrial consortiums to fund some research as well, because we, you know, doing systems research inevitably takes relatively big chunks of change, because systems are pretty complicated. And uh, I, I can say for myself that I've had DARPA funding for my entire career, and starting next year will probably be the first year I don't have direct DARPA funding. Yeah, I think it's a real crisis in several ways. Um, you know, the DARPA money, particularly 6.1 money, the most, uh, the most basic research, and more generally, federal funding for basic scientific research uh, is critically important to the formation of startups, to economic competitiveness in general, and the fact that it's disappearing, or at least it's um, going down relative to what it was in real terms, at the same time that some of the largest corporations that had first-rate research labs, not all of them, but are starting to um, not necessarily cut their budget, but turn toward more applied things. I think that's a prescription for disaster. Um, there was an MI, a study at MIT and Harvard, actually, that showed that uh, if you look internationally at different countries, what were the predictors of uh, economic competitiveness and innovation, the proxy they were using was number of patents uh, filed per capita, and what they found is there's an extremely long uh, time lag, I believe it was six or seven years, before, before you saw the effects of reduced funding uh, having an impact on the private sector. That's too long to make quick mid-course corrections. And I think there's also a theoretical argument that um, you need government funding, not just industry funding, uh, because of something the economists call uh, an economic externality. Um, the fact is that any company is going to systematically underinvest from a social welfare viewpoint in any research finding that isn't uh, fully appropriable. If you know your competitor can capture it as well as you, you will tend to invest less in that, something, but much less than you should. The only way to handle that is with basic research at the federal level, hopefully someday international level. David, you know, you guys have set up a small lab. There's a lot of discussion about 
industry picking up the, the slack that's been left by the federal government. Do you guys have any, I mean, you know, Microsoft is the company now in the wake of AT&T and IBM um, funding basic uh, computer science uh, research has fallen off. Is it conceivable that a Yahoo could, could step, up, step up in a larger way? Do you guys think about that strategically? So we do have, and there's things like Berkeley, but we also have our own just main Yahoo research lab, our uh, research group that uh, we have, it's uh, growing and you know, we're funding that to uh, a fairly significant level today. Uh, but that definitely isn't gonna replace what we're talking about here. What we're investing in tends to be much shorter term things that, uh, well, we, we like to think it's long term for us uh, compared to what you know, you'd find at universities and what you'd get through DARPA funding and government funding, things like that. Um, although it sounds like that's changing now, but hopefully you would be able to look at things much longer out uh, that are much riskier. And so for us, we're going to tend, I think most industries will tend to invest in things that um, either have, have a decent chance of, you know, at least midterm payoff. And, uh, you know, so as much as we're investing in, this, in these areas, it's, it's never going to solve this problem. And you guys personally um, created a, 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 a chair here, a, a professorship. Um, are you, has, has the company done more? Or could you think of doing more in that direction? I mean, in terms of sort of the basic research that you wouldn't do in that, in that midterm? Is, or is, is that not on your radar? We, we could. Of course, there's, uh, we could do anything, I guess, um, when it comes to that. But it's just, you know, looking at the economic realities of, being in very competitive industry, and we have to invest in things that uh, are going to let us survive over the next, you know, we're looking at the next couple of years. Uh, how do we get, you know, to the next two, three, four, five years? And while we do like to, we certainly like to think very long term and like to put some investment in those areas, we're not going to do it at the same level that a university ever would. And we're not, we're just not going to take those kind of, uh, again, like, why, like we may think, we'd like to think that we're taking some big risk in certain areas, but it's just not going to be the same thing. Yeah, I'd just like to point out, if you look at um, the lot of the research that actually led to the companies on this panel and, and all the com a lot of the companies, you won't find a government contract that specifies that as research. You know, it just happens. That, like, for example, VMware and Virtual Machine came out of a project to build scalable supercomputers. You know, it was, it was just that while investigating this one piece of research, we came up with something else, and I don't think there was a Yahoo. <laughs> right, I mean, as you know, Jim said that uh, earlier that, uh, you know, what Yahoo, what allowed us to create Yahoo while we were here wasn't any kind of direct grant, but it was all of the foundation that had been laid due to previous grants and the internet and, you know, the computing infrastructure and store, all those things, they all came together. So uh, I think a lot of things that you that will get created in these kind of environments. You have to invest in lots of different areas that you have no idea how they're going to pay off. And, uh, you know, again, industry will do that to some extent, but again, I don't think you'll ever do that at the same level that universities can do. Maybe it's just a code or an interesting footnote, but I think uh, it's intriguing that the, the DARPA strategy, I think, has largely changed because of a, a Stanford-educated electrical engineer, Colonel Tony Tether. I don't know if that has come up in the Stanford community. Maybe it all is in the family. Um, maybe we can come back to that when the audience uh, participates. Um, I, I, I also uh, next wanted to, to sort of pull the panel on this phenomenon that's known as Web 2.0. Uh, you know that we everywhere I go, signs of a 
uh, a mini bubble or froth or what am I seeing? I mean, maybe I could, I could first start by a asking Jerry or, or David your sense of the Web 2.0 phenomenon and sort of um, there, are, there are now companies that are sort of um, routinely being spawned off the platforms that companies like Yahoo and Google have created. You guys have opened your interfaces and it seems like it's created some, some sort of a, a second order effect that's very interesting. Could you, could you talk about it in the context of sort of startups in the valley and if, if you see that as, a, as, as something that's sort of building on top of what you guys have built? Uh, sure, I'll, I'll go and I'm sure Dave probably has smarter things to say about it, but um, I, I think, you know, John, by and large, I think what's happened in the last three or four years is um, the emergence of the, the, the web services model as a programming paradigm and that, um, you know, the, the bandwidth and the computing devices and the servers and the, um, and the whole infrastructure has reached a maturity where um, you can have very rich clients interacting with very rich back-end servers and, um, and, the, and the publishing paradigm that happened, I think, certainly when we started to the first part of 2000, 2001, that has turned into much more sort of an application program paradigm that's much more, I think, intuitive for software people. So I think the software industry has changed. I think um, we're seeing just a, a tremendous amount of activity um, of people who are now doing, you know, massive scale collaboration through web services and APIs and, and, and the openness of, of that, um, that world. And um, I, I, I certainly, we see um, very quick, certainly in our consumer world, we see very rapid sort of um, building and, and prototyping and therefore launching of, of, of web services, whether it's, um, you know, in the social media space or social networking space or the communication space. Um, and uh, and I think I think the building blocks for for someone to create a piece of software that works on the web, all the traditional barriers have been sort of eliminated because of the new progr programming paradigm. Who loses in that model? I mean, if, is there? <laughs> well, I think people who don't. Well, right. I was going to say. I mean, I, I think people who don't. I mean, we 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 were are a you know a first-generation web company, we, our, our paradigm was not a web services model and we're quickly trying to change ourselves to that. So, you know, we, we Yahoo's at risk and I think every company that um, don't deal with the realities of, 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 um, of, of what's happening to this paradigm is at risk and I think, you know, a traditional model of, of selling software or a traditional model of developing software that takes long, long product cycles, I think they're all sort of being challenged and, um, um, I, I think I think the big guys know that, and I think the little guys see that as an opportunity. You guys are doing there's this phenomenon recently. I think a lot of people know about the mashup camp that happened at the Computer History Museum. You're doing one sort of effectively inside Yahoo. You have Yahoo Hacks Days. Microsoft has responded with a, a, a mix thing that's responding to the O'Reilly sort of call in it. Is that stuff real? I mean, are, are there are there are there meaningful sort of sort of a new class of applications that are viable that are coming out of those those fast sessions? Well, I don't think you have, you know, businesses coming out of those sessions, but you have ideas and those potentially lead to longer term. I think you get some viable businesses. Um, and as Jerry said, you know, this is, it's about us changing our model and it's about, you know, new companies being formed around this model, which is, uh, you know, I think trying to learn from the open source world, which was able to 
tap into the community and build some very sophisticated, very powerful software applications platforms uh, by doing that. And I think in the web services business, we're trying to really emulate that and say, how do we open up our APIs enough so that anybody out there can really tap into those and start to build some very interesting applications. And these one-day things is just you know, the tip of the iceberg of making that happen. Andy, are, are you, I mean, is it fair to say that you're designing to this world from the, from the bottom up? Is that too much well, of a stretch? Um, I was just going to come back to the, the ARPA discussion. I mean, one of the original objectives from, what is it now, 30 years ago, <laughs> Uh, was to was really a self-serving interest to have open protocols, open standards, you know, things that work at least between the ARPA-funded research sites. I mean, those of you who have been around back then, you know, the big problem was everybody had to recreate things, you know, from scratch, and it was basically a waste of time. So the, the original impetus, you know, back in the early 80s was let's standardize on, it was Berkeley Unix at the time, today it would be Linux, and, and TCPIP, and that really enabled, you know, this very massive amount of innovation on top of this platform. So as the level of this platform now goes up to the web services level, you know, we're going to see other interesting innovation on top of that. And, you know, there's some of us that are still slugging it out at the lower levels here, but the point is, you know, the, the innovation scale is certainly moving up. There's no need to recreate all these things that have been done, you know, by the previous generation. Let me see if I can tie that to sort of another sort of reality of the valley. I mean, two other realities. Um, one is outsourcing and the other is the immigration issue. Um, I, I wanted to ask Mendel and Mark and, uh, if you guys have taken advantage or if your companies have taken advantage of outsourcing um, in any, any meaningful way. Uh, is it, is it, your, your companies are sort of mid-range companies. Is it, a, is it a, a reality for you? Uh, um, we've taken advantage some of outsourcing, you know, like you know, we have organization in India. And, but you know, phenomenally, Pretty much the, all the new innovative stuff we do, we pretty much have to use the engineers we have here. Um, I, there is issues with, you know, like in my, where I mean, my Stanford have with immigration. You know, one of the things Stanford had done in the past is suck the best and the brightest from the whole world, you know, into the U.S., where a lot, a lot of people stayed. And with the sort of um, after 9/11 and the tightening of the immigration things, it's now you know, getting harder, you know, got harder for students to get visas and stuff and made Stanford a less attractive place. And I think that's something I w really worry about for the long-term health of both Stanford and the, and the country of if, you know, we no, no longer have this model where all the good people come to the U.S. Yeah, let me just emphasize that last point. I think it's been the case that Stanford was sort of a very bright light on a hill and people from around the world wanted to come to Stanford for graduate programs after 9-11 and the publicity about immigration and some stuff that's gone out, I think the United States in general is less attractive uh, for graduate education. And you combine that with the growing industry in Asia and the desire of those countries to basically improve their graduate program, I think it's gonna be a much more competitive space. And I think that we need to, in the country, both Stanford and for the country, we need to continue to attract the best and brightest people from across the world. I think if you look across Silicon Valley, Silicon Valley is an incredibly diverse place in terms of race, nationality, and everything. It's because it was pretty egalitarian. It was just taking the brightest people and whoever they were, you gave them positions of authority. And I think we've profited very well um, in all senses of the word from that. And I am very worried that the current climate, more than anything else, is going to kill that, and that's like killing the golden goose. Um, and there's, you know, there's a bunch of stuff that goes on in government and everything else. I'm just hoping the current climate, the
that's saying it, that about technical innovation is great, is great. The most absurd thing that I know is you get a PhD from another country, you've educated them, they've done very well, and then you tell them, oops, you really can't work in the United States. I mean, come on guys, this is not, this is not beneficial for almost anybody. So, so how, you know, how resilient do you think that the, the Valley's culture is? I mean, is, uh, my notion is the, of, of it being easy to take it apart or doing some small thing that would undermine it in a, in a big way. Do you, do you think that the, the, the ecology you describe is a resilient one? Well, uh, you know, in all complex systems, there are various perturbations that you're very resilient to, and there are some perturbations that will kill you instantly, right? And there are some things that could be done that will probably kill it instantly or within a, a few, few period of years, you know? If, if you make it difficult for foreign students to come to the United States or to get jobs here, you know, I think you will, if you cut off that flow of students, you will have a dramatic influence on education in the United States and the quality of the high-tech industry. I don't think there's anybody in the industry that would disagree with that. Um, and I'm just, you know, it was so clear, it was hard for me to imagine that anybody wouldn't get it, but I'm afraid that I'm no longer so sure. <laughs> can, I, can, I, can I ask the Valley, this, uh, the, the panel, the sort of flip, the flip side question? You know, there was a period in the 80s when uh, every region in the United States wanted to be a silicon desert or, a, you know, a silicon mountain. And, 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 you know, they couldn't get the, they couldn't spin it. By and large, the regions didn't spin up to have the complete picture that the Valley did. And I just wondered, now that we're seeing you know, so much of the discussion about competition from Asia and, and India, whether anybody has a sense that that same kind of virtuous cycle, I mean, there's, there's lots of stuff happening, but does anybody see regional sort of virtual cycles emerging in, in areas, those areas of the world? Would anybody like to? Um, you basically need critical mass you know, for a virtual cycle, and similar to, you know, there's only one Hollywood in terms of critical mass, there's only one Silicon Valley in terms of critical mass, as far as I can see. Now, other countries are gaining manufacturing efficiencies, you know, all kinds of supply chain integration advantages, cost advantages, but from a creativity in high-tech virtual cycle, I think Silicon Valley is still pretty much a, a unique uh, location here. Other, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I'm a little more worried. I think that's absolutely true right now, but I am worried for the long term. Um, there are actually, we're starting to learn something about this regional development and international development question now. The Council on Competitiveness uh, funded a very good study actually a while ago trying to understand what, was, uh, what were the determinants of regional innovation mostly in the United States. And I think we're starting to see some of those things coalesce in other countries as well. I'm not sure it's a bad thing if you view people in other countries as being human beings as well. You know, in fact, there's, there's good economic theory that says that's exactly what should happen over time. But from a competitiveness viewpoint, what we see is that um, there's gradual evolution. In the beginning, when you saw outsourcing to India in particular, um, there would be sort of ugly pieces of code that nobody in the U.S. wanted to uh, do themselves, and you would sort of give careful specs and send those off to India, and it would magically come back. Um, there is a tendency, I think, at least uh, in our firm, we have about 350 people in India and have been doing it for eight, nine years or something like that. And what we discovered is that that doesn't work as well. The communication bandwidth is too high. What you really want to do is develop, send big projects over that they can take ownership of, understand at a deep level. That's economically much more powerful. The other thing that's starting to change is that the educational institutions in some of these countries, uh, in particular China, are moving ahead very rapidly. And I think it's quite possible that we'll see that the United States won't be attractive 
uh, as it has been historically. It won't be the only place that you send people to graduate school. The people in various parts of Asia could start going to China or to other places. And when you start having that, when you have government funding, uh, strong academics, and a developing base where they have responsibility for individual projects, then you really could have the, uh, the kind of clusters of innovation and um, you know, really thinking out new ideas that we've had here. Reading a reading an article in in the um, it was in um, called Political Science in the New Yorker March 13th issue and sort of addressed a lot of it a lot of the current Bush administration's policies regarding funding for practically everything from stem cells to uh, basic research and so on and one of, one of the one of the uh, quotes one of, one of the things I read was that uh, last year. Uh, I, I remember the numbers, I don't remember the time frame, but China had graduated 700,000 engineers, India 300,000, and the United States 70,000. And, uh, you know, just basic numbers imply that there's, there's trouble ahead in terms of at least the leadership we've traditionally held, we America, the United States of America have held in the world and, and technology. Um, having said that, though, you know, we, we do have a really unique environment here and I'm hopeful that it will survive eight years of, of bad government so that, <laughs> so, that, so that someone intelligent can come in, someone who's educated and intelligent can come in and, and, uh, and actually do something about it. Um, I'm gonna open it up to the crowd in a second. If, if there are microphones around, if we could get the money. But I, you know, there was one question in the last panel that I wanted to, <clears throat> Um, to run by this panel. So I think it was Rod Brooks, although I'm not sure because I was sitting across the room, that was asking about discontinuity, sort of trying to force the last panel to sort of step up to it. And, you know, that's, you know, I've, I've been doing this for 30 years as a, as a reporter following Silicon Valley, and the, the great thing, the great consistent thing about uh, writing about people's sense of the future is the visionaries have always been wrong consistently over a long period of time. And, you know, I think I understand why. I think because it's very difficult to, to make predictions in nonlinear systems. And I think, you know, since we're being driven by Moore's law, it's kind of classic. But I wanted to ask if you would, as a panel, sort of take some stabs at potential discontinuities that really might shake things up. I, I, I mean, when you think about things, are, are there any candidates of things that will come out of left field? Um, you know, those, those are the interesting startups. Those are the things that surprise us, like Yahoo and Google and Sun and SDI and what have you, um, where are the next ones going to come from? Areas, for example, is it possible that something really big could come out of the machine learning world? We're no longer calling it AI, but, but there's so much interesting stuff in, in machine learning. Um, the most remarkable thing I've ever done as a, re a reporter was uh, Sebastian gave me a 50-mile ride in Stanley last year, um, uh, 30 miles an hour over the most amazing desert roads you can possibly imagine. It only crashed once. Um, <laughs> I think that the that you know we, we really sort of under you know, there was a watershed event there that was under underreported if you will for all the attention that it got. I mean I thought it was a big deal. Um, what else you know where else to look? Anybody want to make any bets? I, I would. If, it seems to me that um, it we we you alluded to or we discussed earlier the funding that DARPA and in general government funding, you know, even Netscape came from government funding. It wasn't DARPA per se, it was NSF, but uh, uh, th there's something seriously missed now with the cutback 
not only in just uh, in, in real dollars, but uh, but uh, cut back and in, in adjusted for inflation and every other measure in uh, research funding. But we're spending. Um, I'm sorry to be on a political soapbox here, but we're spending, <laughs> you know, some something of the order of 70 billion a year in Iraq, and I think almost anyone would would say that that at least a large part of that is for oil. So suppose you were to devote half that over 10 years to funding alternative energy research from the government and target like DARPA did, uh, the top seven or so schools, which is what DARPA did. DARPA didn't do the NSF program. DARPA had uh, somewhat enlightened people in charge of IPTO, which is where most of us got our money, the Information Processing Techniques Office, and they targeted individuals, groups, at, groups of faculty and said, we want you to do research in this. Give us a proposal. And that, I think, is what needs to be done in alternative energy. It's clear that something is going to have to be done. And uh, other, otherwise, we keep funding um, the people who don't like us. And uh, uh, so that, that's one thing. And then I think this basic research is going to have to get ratcheted up quite substantially. One, um, even though a lot of the you know, um, progress in, in computers has been very evolutionary, um, the the sort of order of magnitude cost performance improvements that you know we've been able to achieve and projection is will achieve going forward do lead to this um, not non-linear sort of transition in using massive amounts of compute powers for simulation of virtually any phenomenon whether it would be biological or you know chemistry or whatever because it's basically cheaper to simulate than to build the real experiments so I, I see a, a huge opportunity in all kinds of sciences using you know raw compute power to further those those sciences any thoughts david, Even yeah. david I, i'm relieved that andy said that uh, rather than me because that's sort of i have blinders on and that's the part i'm most interested in but i do think simulation has uh, a lot of implications outside of the biological sciences also uh, we just had a group in, uh, there's this, this thing I'm co-chairing uh, the advisory committee for something called the High Performance Computing Initiative, and it's DOD and DOE sponsored, the Council on Competitiveness is administering the program, but it's to try and figure out what industry wants to do with high-speed computing. The answer is mostly simulation. Um, and it comes in an extraordinarily broad range of different areas. You know, there's the traditional stuff like oil exploration and, um, uh, you know, uh, fluid dynamics and things for aviation. But uh, my favorite one was we had somebody there from, I think it was Procter & Gamble's who makes Pringles. I may be wrong about that. The ones, they're these little potato chips that come in a can. They're neatly folded so you can fit a lot in there. Um, well, they have uh, an assembly line. They, first of all, they sell essentially an infinite number of them all around the world. It's just unbelievable. I don't remember how many zeros, but they're just, it's a major staple throughout the world. And they want to produce them as fast as they can, so they send them down this assembly line. And the big problem that they face is that because of that nice shape, it sort of looks like an airfoil. Yeah. When you send them past a certain critical speed, they take off. And they, they start flying around the world. So they have to do Navier Stokes um, simulations and you know, take a look at the materials to see how sticky they are and things like that. And they put a slide up, and the slide looked almost identical to the slide that the Boeing people had. <laughs> and we had other examples that are with diapers and a wide range of things, and you know, less, um, you know, perhaps less uh, interesting. There are things in material science and a variety of different things. Whereas Andy says, what you really want to do is do the experiments in a place where it's nice and clean, 
where at least we as computer scientists and engineers, we never like getting our hands do dirty with matter. You know, you do the simulations to find out what it would do, and that seems to me to be a secular, uh, a secular change, a paradigm that's likely to be a very major one in the future. Well, I, I always dislike this particular question because by its very nature, a breakthrough technology is something that we don't actually expect. And, and I would say if I look over the various breakthrough technologies that have occurred, which of course when they were happening, I was thinking why they, this company would never be successful. <laughs> I said that about Yahoo, I said that about Google, you know, so whatever I say, don't, you know, opposite investing is probably a better strategy for me. But, you know, if you look back, what people, all these companies have in common is they take a problem that everybody agrees is a serious problem, right? And they find some very clever way to fold the problem so that they have an approach that actually might work. It, that's very unexpected. You wouldn't have thought to use this technology for that particular thing. You know, the technology itself doesn't need to be new. It's just that its application to a particular important problem domain is. And sometimes there's some discussion about whether really it's that important. Google, you know, how important was search really? So sometimes it's not, you know, you know not known. But, you know, I think it's really the applications of techniques to important problems that basically cause these breakthrough technologies. And they're very, you know, it's very hard to predict. If you said, I, you know, I could tell you a thousand things I would like, Probably all of them are impossible, so they're not very interesting. It's the one that is both important and possible that causes a breakthrough technology, and I just don't think it's worth postulating those because I don't think it's predictable. Yeah, I'm just, sorry. I'll say biology. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. Let's, uh, let's open it up to the audience. Um, why don't you try to... Uh, and John? actually, could you identify yourself if you'd introduce yourself? Ed Feigenbaum first. I'll introduce you first. I know yeah, you John, thanks. Can, uh, can you hear me? Uh, th uh, I want to ask this uh, question because I'm Hector's co-chair of this meeting and, and also want to thank you so much for this fantastic uh, uh, panel. This is a question that is uh, not about anything in particular. Uh, John came with some great questions and he's been spraying you with, with questions and you therefore more or less are directed to answer whatever John has been asking. But you, you probably all came here with at least one thing you wanted to say that might not have been covered by what John asked. Uh, can you each say one of those things? So maybe I should start. So the, the, the slide I was working on, which I didn't finish, was actually the list of startup companies that came out of Stanford and the Computer Science Department. And uh, Carolyn Tainai did this wonderful report, I think it ended in 1996, and she had 300 companies that were started by either you know, Stanford alumni or directly out of, out of the groups, and I would guess at least half of those came out of the computer science field. Now, nobody has updated this list since 1996, so it must be by now at least 500 companies. That, that's just a rough guess, but I think one uh, action item or challenge here for somebody in this room should be to update all the companies that came out of Stanford, because I don't think anybody else in the world can match that number. Other, other, you know, without the dictatorial panel moderator. <laughs> <laughs> Tell all your friends <laughs> to vote Democratic in November. <laughs> No. 
other, I can think about your, yeah. we'll give you a closing moment too. Yes. Is there a microphone? Oh, um, do we have another microphone too? Oh, oops. Okay, well, well, let's see. We'll go to who has the microphone. Um, Peter first, Peter Neumann from SRI. Thank you, John. Um, some of us in this room have been in uh, research and security for over 40 years, and uh, yet a lot of that research has been very slow in finding its way into the commercial marketplace. Um, my question recognizes that security is a system-wide property rather than a sort of a point solution property. But the question is, what can we in the university and nonprofit research community uh, do to try and make the research either more meaningful or if it's already meaningful, uh, more uh, interesting and uh, commercially viable uh, to you guys? Why has computer security been slow to, to enter the commercial marketplace? Well, I think it's been slow to enter just because the customers didn't care enough for it. And I think we've actually seen a change in that where, you know, you look at Microsoft where it was putting more and more features into their product and now they're basically trying to patch all the security bugs in it. And, and so it basically, you know, I'm not sure what's going to take to change it. You know, one of the things that worries me is the implication that if our lawyers get a hold of this and we lose software, loses the ability to be sort of um, liability free, then, you know, may kill all innovation, but it would certainly also attack this problem that you couldn't ship a piece of software with the current security bugs that we do today. I was going to comment that you know it, I don't actually agree that it's not not didn't make a major impact. I mean, security is used in many many very important applications, but it tends to be driven by business models where people can either protect the business or make some more money off it to then actually make it secure. And I think a lot of people are realizing now how important that is. So um, you know the, the whole public-private uh, um, key encryption. Technology certainly has really made the internet usable as it is today for commercial transactions, and without that, the internet wouldn't even be what it is. So security is really part of the foundation, I would say, of the internet as, as we know it. Was it, was it uh, true that Bill Joy wanted to put a, a DES chip on the first Sun one, and why didn't it get put on if it was that, true? That, that was because the, the software, that CPU was too slow to compute it at a re decent rate, but you know, today you can do it all in software, so it's not the, the chip anymore. D David? Yeah, I would say that... Um, in many ways, we also need to make it much easier to use. There's a lot of, uh, you know, getting people to pick a password that's not easily guessable is a challenge in itself. So when you talk about, and obviously that's not security. Um, so to get real security, you have to make it extremely, when you're talking about masses, you have to make it extremely user-friendly, very easy to use. Um, you know, once, you know, if you're talking about securing data, uh, you can't let people um, get, not get access to that data when they need it. Um, so making it easy to use, uh, you know, not, not making it hard to screw up, I guess. Um, and of course, one of the problems is when you start to talk about encryption and stuff, the governments get involved and try to toward certain, uh, you know, products or whatever that are going to secure data. And so it's not necessarily just a kind of technology problem, but also, you know, political problem as well. Exactly. This is uh, funny enough. This is working. Um, a national ID card with an RFID chip, you know, would greatly improve ease of use of security, but it has a lot of other implications. 
<laughs> there are trade-offs. Now you have a microphone. Okay, um, C. Mohan from IBM Almaden. I'd like to point out to Andy that while there's only one Hollywood, there is Bollywood, and they make a lot more movies in terms of numbers. <laughs> uh, but more seriously, um, uh, countries like India are taking innovation very seriously. In fact, uh, my third-line boss is Nick D'Onofrio, who many of you probably have heard of. He goes around the world giving talks on innovation, and guess what? Last Thursday, he was in India, and he met the president of India. And he had to sit through a presentation by the president of India on innovation. <laughs> and the Indian president is, you know, extremely accomplished scientist with lots of honorary doctorates and all that. And so countries like India are taking innovation very seriously. And the IITs, while they've concentrated on undergraduate education all these years, decades, they are under the gun now from the prime minister of India and other officials to get cracking with concentrating on research. So. I'd like to hear what you have to say about some of these sorts of trends. China was mentioned, but India is also coming up in that sense. Any comments? <laughs> yes, Mark. Well, you know, I, I, I'm not surprised, basically. It's what, to be, what you would expect to have happen in those countries that have basically booming industries. It's economically advantageous for them to do this, and you have to assume that, that countries are going to do this. And so certainly the major competition for foreign talent is going to be India and China right now. It's the places where the industries are booming in the high-tech area. And that's why I think that we have to be able to leverage our um, current advantage. It will take a while for them to build up these institutions. If we can manage to be the place that you want to come to, even if you want to work in India, because you'll meet the other people who are working in India who are the top tier at here, there's the most interesting projects going on here, then we will be able to maintain our status as being the top school or one of the top schools to come. And I think we need to do that. It's going to take more outreach than we're used to doing, but I think we have the capability to do that, and I just we think we need to get our, our rears in gear. Thank you. If I could just add, yes. I, I think, you know, there's maybe this is sort of an earlier comment about, you know, the virtuous cycle and, and, and being able to recreate the dynamics that are here. You know, I, I think, um, you know, if you, if you listen to the, uh, not only the stats that Jim talked about, but also just the, the people who, who examine these things, you know, whether it's regional um, advantages and, and things like that, it, it's, it's not a stretch to think um, when economies like India or China um, have a large domestic economy and um, it's not far to think that they'll have a, a fairly robust stock exchange. You know, our, our own undoing of Sarbanes-Oxley and making it harder for private companies to go public is, is also the other thing that we're doing ourselves. But, um, but you know, once, once you have a domestic economy that is strong, once you have a stock exchange that's fluid, you're going to have capital, and, and it's going to be easier to invest capital <clears throat> within those local economies than it is to figure out a way to do it here. But I... I I, so I, I do think that there is a high degree of, you know, chance that, that, that um, especially when you, when, as you said, you know, the, the, the leaders of these countries are largely technocrats, people with IT or scientific backgrounds, which I don't think our country's had in a long time. So, um, yes, that's true. Well, it's not a political statement, it's a fact. So, so, you know, I, I, think, I think there's a number of things that I, I think countries that are much more deliberate about building an economy through IT and through technology, I think we, we as Americans and certainly Stanford as an institution need to worry about. Um, at the same time, I, I do see a lot of hope. I do see that um, we, we continue to 
be extremely adaptable and extremely um, um, nimble in, in the way in which we uh, not only collaborate between industry and, and, and educational institutions and the private sector and the public sector, um, but also I think that there is, um, there's always that next level and I think what, what, what Stanford is trying to do now, talking about um, what is the next educational mission for a world-class university, um, it, it's still early, but I think that, that kind of thinking is going to continue to separate us from um, still, you know, you go to a great university in one of these countries and, and they're great. They are got way talent, a lot of talent, they got great researchers, they got funding now, they got a lot of attention, but, but they, they, they still got, you know, five to ten years to go. They may accelerate in their pace, but, but I, I just got to believe there is leadership here um, because of the partnership we struck, because of our experience, because of our learning, um, but to define the next educational mission around Stanford, I think, is a, is a huge opportunity. I, I just realized there's one, one more point I should make. Um, a little over a year ago, John Hennessy commissioned a, uh, a group to study graduate education at Stanford with the goal about trying to make a graduate education at Stanford in a decade um, even better than it is right now, and in the view of this more competitive environment. And one of the advantages that Stanford has is that it is not only excellent in computer science or all of engineering, it actually has top um, rated schools in all the seven schools. And that if we are able to leverage that so people who come to Stanford in any of these places can basically take advantage of the fact that we have an excellent medical school, we have an excellent law school, we have an excellent business school. So graduate students have an opportunity to meet people from all those schools. Um, we're one of the few universities that actually all these schools are co-located on the same physical campus which makes it much more possible. I think, and if we're able to break down some of the walls that currently separate these groups, we will really be a, forf a leader in the interdisciplinary work that we all believe is gonna drive the industry in the future. And so we are actively working on that process now to try to implement those, return those reforms so that when other schools in a decade get where Stanford is, it won't actually be where they need to be. Okay, um, I'm Bertrand Meyer from uh, ETH Zurich and also from uh, Eiffel Software. Uh, my question is this, uh, I guess your businesses for a large part rely on software, uh, on programs. So I don't assume that any of you really buys uh, McCarthy, John McCarthy's point this morning that no one should be able, permitted to release a program unless it's been mathematically proven, I think that's probably a bit beyond what you think. But uh, still, I would be interested to hear the, the panel's view about the, the state of the underlying software technology that, that you rely on. And, uh, you think is this small? Are you pretty happy with it? Uh, has every, everything more or less been invented in this area? I mean, wh what do you need from software technology? Well, it, and certainly I, I think the limiting factor at probably all these companies is ability is the software. It's in you know, the complexity in the software and things like that. Um, you know, proofs and stuff hasn't really shown, hasn't given us a lot of help on, you know, managing a 10 million line software base, you know, at least not to date. And certainly, you know, a, as we go forward, managing huge bases of software is going to be, you know, like, you know that that could be like the breakthrough if you actually figure out how to you know do that better than the current companies can it's certainly it's certainly a problem for us whether it's our writing our own software which is i don't know millions of lines of code or whether it's relying on other pieces of code 
you know, whether that's operating systems, whether that's Oracle, whether it's Microsoft and their desktop environment and all the bugs that come with that. Uh, so none of that's perfect and it, you know, as we, as our code base grows, it gets more and more unwieldy as well. So, uh, and the state of it is, is what it is. It's uh, obviously, you know, it's been, uh, we've relied on a lot of third party, a lot of open source stuff and it's uh, served us very well, but um, it's certainly not where we'd want it to be today. And there's, we see lots of room for improvement in this stuff, but it, for us, I don't see any kind of clear answers to uh, solving some of these really big problems. It's actually amazing that it works as well as it is. <laughs> <laughs> there, it's the microphone, I guess, and, and then to the other microphone. Go ahead. Um, we touched on a number of um, political and uh, social issues. Uh, I'd like to bring up one that I think is underlying, or I'm not sure where the cause and effect is, but can you comment on the current appalling and increasing ignorance and apathy in this country towards understanding technology and science and critical thinking? And as Stanford, as an in educational institution, uh, would you like to make some comments about that? Yeah, I think. I think that is a major concern at this point. Um, you know, there are two components that I'm concerned about. Um, one is that if we look to leadership, um, you know, in Washington uh, for our guidance, we need to have somebody there who understands what science is about, technology also, but the scientific method, how we come to know truth in the scientific world, and who can explain that to people and relate it to policy. Um, the, uh, you know, in particular, I'm very concerned about the quality of advice that's being given uh, to the White House and to some extent to Congress at this point. Um, setting aside the, the White House itself, um, right now the scientific advisory apparatus um, is only providing advice that's within a very narrow political domain. It's essentially preaching to the converted where the converted are the people who are asking for input there. And I think that's a dangerous prescription. Um, I'm not so much concerned about the the part where scientific advisors speak to the public defending what an administration is always doing, uh, that has been something that's it's been a trend, an unfortunate one over the years, but it's been raised to new heights over the last uh, you know six, seven years or so, to the point where I'm afraid that um, the White House in particular just isn't hearing things that are important. Um, the other part, uh, of course, is explaining to the public, and I think that's that's a very tough one. You know, how do we explain the respect in which um, the theory of evolution differs from the theory of um, intelligent design. And I think one important part of that, that's just an example of course, is treating with respect what some of the opponents, what we regard as the opponents are saying. Um, rather than say that's absurd, you know, how can you account for that, you know, evolution is established as beyond a doubt, acknowledging the fact that there's a domain for religious belief, but it's just not the domain that's claimed by science, that science has the right to define what it is, and that that's whatever that other thing is, um, it may be very important, it may be very you know, meaningful in people's lives, but it doesn't have anything to do with formulating potentially refutable hypotheses, subjecting them to systematic testing, um, finding alternative explanations, gradually whittling out uh, you know, the other alternative explanations, I think it'll be hard, but we have to find some way to communicate to people what that process is and how it's contributed to their lives, all the technologies that are available, the medical science, and how much they depend on uh, that scientific method. I think it's most everyone would consider it fairly obvious that we should decouple
politics and religion. We should decouple politics and science, or religion and science, uh, because there's no reason to couple them. Um, there's debate, of course, philosophical debate about uh, beliefs, but science is not a, a system of beliefs. It's about it's a system of hypotheses that are testable and uh, proven true or false. Um, I it seems. I, I think this should be obvious pretty much to everyone because most of these people in here, I'm sure, have a science background of some kind or another. At least you've taken science courses. Uh, but you're rare in the United States. There's a lot of people who haven't, a lot of people who, in, especially in, in the inner parts of the country, who aren't as educated about science. And um, we, we're going to have to do something, and I think it's going to take leadership. We're just missing the leadership in the governmental level to uh, impose standards for, for uh, uh, public schools and the like in order to get people more educated. And as people get more educated, I think these, a lot of these problems go away. Personally, I think we need another Sputnik. How do you make a Sputnik happen? Have you studied uh, I, the first Sputnik? I, 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 what I meant is that um, there has to be some national concern about this and, you know, people from all levels of society deciding this is something that's important to do. I mean, it happened after World War, partially out of World War II and partially Sputnik, really formed, galvanized the country, I think, in many ways about the importance of science. Um, and, you know, whether you think that particular incident was important or not or whether it warranted the reaction it did, it's not the issue. The issue is I think we need to do something where the country gets together and decides something's important, and I think that has a lot to do with group dynamics and stuff that I don't understand, but I think it would be helpful. I think you just need a really good political leader who's in <laughs> In the back. Uh, my name is... Is it on? It'll come up. Is it on? Yeah. Yeah. Ian Benson. Um, my company's Sociality. If uh, MATLAB is the bastard child of Gene Golub, then uh, Sociality is the bastard child of Terry Winograd and Roger Needham, because we uh, counted as a company founded at the Computer Lab in Cambridge, which celebrated its 50th anniversary a few years ago, as well as a company that's come out of Stanford. Um, I wanted to um, um, ask the panel, as parents and employers, we're here uh, celebrating 40 years of continuous performance improvement by the department. As parents and employers, what have you observed in the way of performance improvement of the employees coming into your company and your children's experience of their own schooling over that 40 years? And are there any lessons do you think you might apply from your experience in the department and your companies that we might apply to what we've learned about what may have happened in the elementary and high school systems. So, uh, well, uh, one of my uh, personal concerns, quite frankly, is the uh, mass media preoccupation with what's happening in Hollywood and you know who is dating whom or whatever. So there seems to be, and I don't quite know what the economics are, but the, the young people, you know, and the, the teenagers basically are exposed to an excessive amount of redundant information and <laughs> and at the same time there's a, a, an absence of you know sort of any interesting uh, interest in science subjects quite frankly except for a very small subject of the uh, portion of the population and some which then end up at, in Stanford hopefully 
but I think there's, a, there's sort of a mass market psychology question of, you know, what does the country spend its time on, uh, either on the evening news or on the newsstands or whatever. And uh, for some reason, the, the, the scientific portion has seen, at least my impression, seems to have been shrinking. And maybe part of the problem is that all this com wonderful computer technology made it so easy, you know, to use computers that it's almost like, well, anybody can, you know, run uh, the browser and, and pop up the Yahoo website and, and feel they're comp computer savvy, right? So it, it's, the, the end user experience, of course, is very easy, but the, the work behind creating this is actually very hard. Have the pick of the litter in terms of employees. Do you, do you have any thoughts about? Uh, you know, you guys see a lot of a lot of prospective employees. It's certainly one of our at Yahoo. It's certainly one of our problems uh, in terms of just attracting and being able to find a qualified you know, set of, especially on the engineering side. And it's one of the reasons why we have a fairly significant development shop in India is to be able to tap into the talent that's there, local in Bangalore and what the universities there are producing. And so uh, we certainly have a challenge in the Bay Area, and that's, you know, it's a number of other factors as well, not just, uh, you know, whether it's education or these things, but it's, there's a lot of other issues there as well. But in general, we find, um, I think we've always found it to be challenging, and certainly in this current environment where there's, as you mentioned earlier, a lot of companies getting funded, and uh, that just leads to more and more uh, competition for the scarce resources that we have. And so when you see things like, enrollment in CS programs either declining or flat at best, that's certainly not a good, uh, good trend for us going in the future. Of, we look out in the future and seeing that we look into our growth projections for the company and how many engineers we have to hire over the next five years and we don't see how we're going to hire them here or even other places in the U.S. It gets challenging, so that's why one of the big reasons we look overseas. Well, and just to add to that, I think, you know, one of the interesting things is, is somebody talked about machine learning earlier, but you know, it, it's, it, it's now one of the key areas where I think all us and all of our competitors try to recruit against. And, 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 and when you look at people who were trained in machine learning five to ten years ago, they probably weren't looking to be trained to, to work in industry in the way we're talking about working today. Um, so you, you, you definitely have this lag effect where, you know, what we were potential being trained in school and being educated on may or may not be immediately applicable and sometimes may not be applicable for, for half a decade or a decade later when when other discontinuous things happen to drive the industry. So not only do we have, I think, an ongoing challenge in continue to create more educated um, students and therefore higher quality workforce, you know, companies like ours, we can go off, uh, overseas and, and be employees around the world. I think, I think the, the bigger question is, um, are we, are we, doing enough things across enough disciplines over enough time that, um, that allows sort of the serendipity and the discontinuity to happen. Um, and that, that, that I'm not sure, as, as, as David talked about earlier, you know, as, as sort of research becomes more applied out of necessity and out of sort of um, companies funding them rather than sort of a, 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 a more longer term government funding, I'm just not sure we're, we're, we're going to have enough basic capabilities and, and students thinking through the, you know, for the next discontinuity, and I, I don't know what that is, but, but certainly what, what's the machine learning equivalent of, of 10 years from now? And somebody might be studying that today that have no apparent, you know, I mean, less application, not no apparent applications, but less applications than, than today, you know, when you're, you're, you're the hottest commodity if you have a PhD in machine learning. So, um, so that, that's, that's another issue I think we see. 
So I, I guess I had a question about what you guys have learned since you've left Stanford um, for the, <laughs> the set that has. Um, so at some point in the past, you hadn't started a company, and maybe you didn't even know how to start a company. So are there, there big lessons that you can sort of point to and, and that would have let you avoid a bunch of bitter experience or sort of surprises about how the real world worked that you didn't anticipate at all? Or not? <laughs> Go ahead. The major thing I've learned is that air conditioning systems never work. <laughs> In an office environment, I don't know how you found it. It's, I don't know why it can't be solved. It's a very simple problem. You set the temperature. If it's too low, you want it to go up. If it's too high, you want it to go down. They just don't work. <laughs> Other lessons learned in the interim. <laughs> That's a hard one. I'm not sure how widely applicable it is, but uh, in my case, when I started Silicon Graphics, um, I didn't, I, I had no credentials as a business person. And um, if, I, if I were to do it over, my number one thing different, to do different would, would be that I would have gotten someone who had some business background as a colleague, as, as and, and I mean someone who would, would be a partner at the time, at the time of foundation. In uh, Andy's case, he had Scott McNeely and, and uh, and Vinod Koshlak, uh, who were both, you know, somewhat experienced. I mean, I didn't know what a balance sheet was when I started Silicon Graphics. And so I had taken, the, the Stanford Business School had a, had a guide to writing a high technology business plan, and they had this pro forma balance sheet, which I just included in my uh, <laughs> business plan. <laughs> Not really. I'm just, but, but uh, as a consequence, the venture investors took 40% of my company for $800,000. Uh, that was a big mistake because I resented it for the rest of my time at Silicon Graphics. When I left the company, I had made, I had owned about a percent and a half when I left and founded Netscape. And it's also the reason that I didn't let venture investors invest in Netscape in the beginning, which is the reason I made a lot of money. When I was at Stanford, I was actually trying to take some uh, classes at the business school, but they, they wouldn't let me in. There was some, <laughs> something about the schedule not working with the rest of the university, and it's actually surprisingly hard to get, uh, get into that business school. So, so we're working on fixing that right now. So. <laughs> One final question from the audience. Do we have a... Okay. Let's uh, give our panel a hand. Thank you. <laughs>
The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.